Heavenly Father, you are good and holy and you, you call us to be holy as you are holy, O Lord. And for us whom you have called to yourself, uh, the devil would love nothing better than to bring us back into the disgrace of sin and to cause us to, to stumble and to, uh, to fall into sin so that your name will not be glorified. Lord, I pray that you would use the, the feeble and weak words that I speak to encourage your people, uh, that we would be those who do not enter into temptation and fall into sin, but those who resist temptation and flee from it. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, those words that were read a moment ago by Corbina were perhaps the greatest temptation that ever has occurred in history the temptation of Christ by the devil, the temptation of the one who was perfect. Those words, as he, as he struggled in the garden, as he struggled with the, the temptation not to go ahead with, with the task that the Father had set for him. And yet even in the midst of that, even in the midst of his deep anguish and trial, he was able to teach his disciples something about temptation, only small, and yet those few words that he said to his disciples are of such great and infinite value as we think about temptation and how it is that we can flee from it. So it is those words in particular from Matthew 26 verse 41 that we're going to study and I'm going to read them again quickly. He said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if you're taking notes, uh, the structure of the sermon will be very similar to Josh's structure, actually almost identical, just coincidence. Um, but point one, the nature of temptation. And point two, the danger that we enter into temptation. And point three, the remedy, watch and pray. So temptations at their heart are things that lead us into sin. A temptation is something that precedes sin, and a temptation is something that tr- causes you to sin. This is the definition that John Owen gives in his book. A temptation, then, in general, is anything that, for any reason, exerts a force or influences to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience of God, from the obedience God requires of him, to any kind of sin. This is what temptation is at its heart. It is something that draws us away from obeying God and it brings us to sin. And one of the most powerful and vivid descriptions of this process comes in Genesis chapter 4. And it's God himself who says it when he's speaking to Cain. uh, As Cain is tempted and meditating on sinning and murdering his brother. And God says to him, he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if not, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. Just imagine that image. Sin, God says, is like a beast that crouches at your door. And in the moment of temptation, is the moment when it's right there. It's right at the door. It's ready to come in. And God says to Cain, as he says to all of us, in that moment of temptation, you must resist. You must rule over it, he says. Part of what we're going to look at today is how to do that. Uh, as Christians, we are those, who Josh, as Josh has already said, who have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. We are forgiven of the guilt of our sin and we are released from the power of it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet as we live in this sinful flesh, as we still have these sinful hearts, and as we live in this sinful and broken world around us, sin still exerts force on us. Temptations are still real. The devil, he uh, is described in the God's word, is like a roaring lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour. Although he knows that we who are God's people have been saved and we are those whom God has, has brought to himself, yet the devil would love nothing more than to disgrace us in sin so that God's name is not glorified, so that his people, when they disgrace themselves, will, will be a, a ma on God's church. He would love that, even if he knows that he cannot make one of God's true people fall away, yet still he would love to mar you. He would still to make you, love to make you filthy in sin, to take glory away from God's name. But before we go any further, I want to quickly make a distinction, and one that's important to do before we talk about temptation, is the difference between testing and tempting. 
Because in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, the same word in the Greek means both to test and to tempt, which is a bit strange because you might think, well, how do they know which one it is in the translation? Well, it's often quite clear. And I think it's purposeful in the sense that uh, this thing, it's, it's almost often another way of translating it is a trial. It's like a trial, and it can be a positive trial in the sense that God is using a trial to test you, or it can be a negative trial in the sense that God, in the sense that the devil or your own sinful nature is using the trial to tempt you. Uh, the, probably one of the clearest examples of God testing is Genesis 22, when God tests Abraham. He tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, and we know that sac- the sacrifice of one's child is something that God abhors. It is an abomination to him. It is a terrible sin to sacrifice your child. And so in one sense, this, this thing, to, it, was, it was sinful to sacrifice your child, and yet God used it as a test. We know that God was never actually going to make Abraham sacrifice his son, but this thing that could very easily have been a temptation to him in the sense that it was something that was drawing him to do something that was sinful, God was using it to test him, to show the true faith that he had within him. Abraham may not have known that he had that faith, but God was showing Abraham the gracious faith that he had given him. Uh, And we know God does not ever tempt anyone. Hear these words from James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God does not tempt us, but he does test us. And you might say, why? Why does God test us? Well, I think there are many reasons, but two in particular. Uh, I think God tests us to show us what is truly in our hearts. Often when you go through a time of testing is a time when everything, the facades of of your life, the facades you put on are stripped away. And what is shown when you experience that test is what is truly in your heart. Often during great times of trials in in nations, maybe when there's a great disaster or distress or a war, people often do things that they would never have done. They go and they do things, either maybe acts of great bravery or acts of great terror and evil. And often those are the things that were truly in that person's heart to begin with. But the test, when all the facades are stripped off, it shows what's truly in that person's heart. And that's, that's one of the reasons that God tests us. He does it to show us what is truly in our hearts. He comes to the surface during a time of trial, during a time of testing. He can either show us uh, that we are, there is goodness in us in the sense that maybe he has done a work of grace in us and we don't see it, but he uses a trial to show it to us when he tests us. Or maybe he wants to show us our sin. And so he uses a test to show us the sin that we need to repent of and the need we, that we turn, our need to turn away from it. Uh, and another example, God may test us to show how utterly reliant we are on him. When God tests us, when he strips everything away, we realize that we actually have nothing without him. God's testing is a a gracious means by which he shows us our utter dependence and he strips away our self-righteousness from us. When we might think that we're strong enough to, to live for ourselves, God may use a test to show us that we're not, to show us that we desperately need him. And I'm sure many of us can relate to that when times when God has brought us through great testing in our life, but he's used it to show us how utterly dependent we are on him. Uh, this, this testing by God is the positive side of this word, this word in the original language, but temptation is the negative. And temptation, I might say to start with, can either be external or internal in the sense that temptations can either be things that are surrounding you and coming at you, or they may be from your own sinful heart coming out of your heart because we have sin within us in this sinful flesh. External temptations, first of all, those are things in this world around us or maybe from other people that tempt us to sin. The devil, he can use any situation in your life to tempt you, any external situation, any at all. It could be a great victory or a great defeat. It could be a time of great busyness. It could be a time of great idleness. It doesn't matter what situation you are in in your life. 
The devil knows exactly how to use it to tempt you. The devil has been tempting people for thousands of years. He's been trying to draw God's people away from following God, and he is very good at it. He is extremely clever. He knows every tactic. He knows every trial that he can put you through. He knows things that you'd never think of. He knows the sinful nature that we have, and he knows exactly how to use it and how to twist it with his external temptations. And when we think of external temptations, we also think of Christ. Because we know Jesus was tempted. The the Bible says he went through temptations, but Jesus had no sinful flesh. He had no sinful nature within him. He was perfect. And so those, those trials, those temptations he went through were purely external. They were only things on the outside. It wasn't his own sinful flesh that ever tempted him because he had none. When the devil tempted Christ, it was with things of this world. He tempted Christ to give him all the kingdoms of the world. Or in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, he tempted Christ not to go through the suffering that he had come to suffer. Those are external temptations. They are things from outside of us that are used, the devil uses to tempt us. And the other side are internal temptations. Internal temptations, they are the temptations that come out of our own sinful heart. And the, maybe the devil using our own sinful heart or could just be the, the, the sinful things that are in our hearts themselves that are coming to the surface. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 24, is a key passage when uh, the, Jesus is asked about foods that are unclean, and Jesus responds by saying uh, that it's not what comes into you, but it's what comes out of you. And he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. These are the internal temptations, temptations to these sins that come out of our own sinful flesh. Imagine for a moment that if your life is like a castle, a great castle, and this castle is surrounded and it's attacked by enemies, by a foreign army that's surrounding it. Although those enemies surrounding the castle, they're like external temptations. They're from the outside and they're trying to attack and to come in. And you can, in a sense, you can fight back against those external temptations. You could withdraw yourself from the world. You could withdraw yourself from other people. And it's like building up the walls of the, the castle to stop these external temptations from getting in. And in a, in a time of war, that is a good strategy. When you, if you build up your fortress, it will stop your enemies from coming in. But in a great battle, it doesn't matter how strong your castle is, it doesn't matter if it can withstand every single enemy, the castle can still fall if there's a traitor on the inside. And that's what we have, traitors on the inside, our own sinful flesh. It doesn't matter how much you try and block it out from around you, we have it on the inside. The sinful flesh is within us. It's like a traitor on the inside who's working against you at every moment of your life, our own sinful flesh. And the devil, he, he uses our own sinful flesh and he uses these, these external things around us to tempt us, to try and draw us away from following God, to draw us into sin. Uh, often it might be quite blurred to figure out whether it's something external or internal or both. And doesn't it, it is helpful to know those things, but ultimately what we need to know is how to respond to that temptation when we are experiencing it. Uh, and one other thing I might say before we move on is that sometimes the identical things that the devil uses as a temptation, God is using as a test. We've talked before about Abraham, but I think there's an even clearer example, which is Job, the, the sufferings of Job. Uh, God, we know clearly that it was Satan trying to tempt Job to, to stop following God and to blaspheme God's name, but in the exact same moment, we know from this incredible picture we get of the, the courts of heaven that it was God testing Job. It was God proving Job's faith that he knew Job had, that Job would resist and that Job wouldn't fall into the devil's temptations. In the same moment, God was using it as a test, the devil was using it as a trial. And so often that's how it works in our lives. If God is using something as a test, the devil may be using it in the same moment as a temptation. And we know that in the midst of these things, God works everything for good in our lives. Even the temptations that we suffer, God brings good out of them. So that was point one, the nature of temptation. Point two, the danger, which is entering into temptation. And entering into temptation, uh, I've 
going to talk in this sermon uh, using the way that John Owen describes it. He says that entering into temptation is like that time in your life when the temptation, it's, it's kind of come into you. You're wrestling with it. You're, you're in the midst of temptation. I might, I'll describe it quickly, maybe in something that will help you to understand. Often, there are temptations in our life, but by God's grace, we simply pass by them and they don't affect us. Uh, I often get tempted by different things, and sometimes I, I see those things in my life, and somehow by God's grace, they just pass by, and they don't affect me. And by His grace, I just move on. But there are other times when we enter into temptation, when the temptation doesn't pass. That is the time when John Owen would describe you have entered into it, when the wrestle, when the fight begins. Uh, the other language Scripture uses, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, describes falling into temptation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 talks about temptation overtaking you. Uh, and Revelation 3 verse 10 describes a period of time called the hour of temptation. And uh, John Owen would say that these all represent the same thing. It represents that time in your life when the temptation has come at you. When it's, it's not when it's kind of out there and you're kind of going through a time when God's sustaining you. The temptation is, is in battle against you. You're in the midst of the battle. You are fighting against temptation. We're not always fighting against temptation. Sometimes by God's grace, he's sustaining us and he's taking us through, but oftentimes we're in those periods where we are fighting. There's a wrestle and you know it. You know that your sinful nature is there. It's like sin is crouching at the door. You know it's, it's that close to you sinning and you're fighting. Those are the times, John Owen would say, when we have entered into temptation. And so uh, I might describe it quickly using another illustration. Imagine it's like being in the ocean and there's a rip, a, a strong rip. You're in the surface. You're, maybe you're in the shallows. Your feet are firmly on the ground. This rip is really strong, but your feet are on the ground. It's shallow. It's not affecting you in the slightest. You're, you're walking around. You're playing. You're having fun. You don't even notice it. It's like that time in our life when the temptation is there, but by God's grace, he's sustaining us so that we don't fall into it. And so it's there. It's in the midst of us, but God is keeping us from it. But the moment when your feet leave the ground, the moment when you stray from those shallows, all of a sudden it goes from nothing to a life or death battle. Something that a second ago was just, you didn't even notice it. Now it's so strong that you cannot resist it. You cannot get rid of it no matter how hard you fight, no matter how hard you struggle. That's often how temptation seems to go in our lives. I'm sure you all know it. It might be that in one moment you're fine, it's, there's nothing affecting you, and the next moment it seems you've fallen into something deadly and you're fighting desperately, and it just comes on like that. That's how the devil often uses temptation. He brings them on suddenly. He brings them on unexpectedly. Those things that maybe only a moment before God was keeping us from, now we have entered into the time of temptation. And uh, the devil has many strategies. The devil has many techniques which he uses in that time, his weapons of warfare that he uses against you. Uh, a lot of the things that I'm going to speak about, these, these tactics that the devil used, come from this book, uh, which is one of the most precious books that has ever been published in history. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks, whom Josh mentioned before. What it is, it's a book that lists all of Satan's devices. Uh, devices is an old word that just kind of means schemes. It's from that passage that, I forget where it is, where um, he says we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes, or Satan's devices is the way that it used to be translated. And because the, the author of the scripture said we are not ignorant of Satan's devices, then Thomas Brooks thought we ought not to be ignorant of them. And so he wrote a book where he lists every single device he knew of, every single strategy he knew of that Satan uses, and then afterwards he gives the remedy, the antidote. And I, this book has helped me so much in my life. This book helped him, he writes of it, and so many others in his time. And if you want this book as well, come and talk to me. He literally lists every single temptation that he knows of and then the remedy against it. But let me go on uh, to some of the things Satan does. First of all, he, he, makes he makes sin seem not as bad as it used to be. Something that before you might have abhorred and thought you knew that was terrible and awful, yet all of a sudden it doesn't seem so bad. All of a sudden, these things that you, you once knew were terrible, now there, there seems to be some kind of inkling of good to them. It's almost as if it's not that bad after all. Uh, the, Satan hides the ugliness and filth of sin. It's one of his cleverest strategies. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, the guy who wrote this, described this as when the devil, he presents the bait and hides the hook. 
That's what he does. You see this thing, it looks amazing, it looks not that bad, it looks good, but you have no idea there's a hook in the middle of it waiting to hook you and to take you. One of the clearest examples of, of this is Psalm 73. You may know it, um, of the Psalm of Asaph, where Asaph talks about how he sees all these things that the wicked have, and they seem so good. God's hidden from him. All the, or the, the devil is hidden from him to some extent, the wickedness of what the, the, which the wicked people are doing, to the point where he can almost see as if it's good, and he wrestles, he struggles. If you read Psalm 73, it's um, an apt and clear picture of what this looks like when the devil has tempted you to think that something that is wicked isn't really that bad. That is the struggle of Psalm 73. Or, of course, we could talk about the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden, uh, when the devil, he tricks Eve and Adam into thinking that it's not really that bad to take the fruit, it's not really that bad, it's not really that terrible, you won't really die, when of course they would die. The devil presents the bait but hides the hook. And if we think more about that first temptation in the Garden of Eden, there's another strategy the devil uses, which is equally as deadly. I don't know if you, if you know that the very first words that the devil speaks to Eve in the Garden of Eden, the very first temptation, what is it that he says? He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He tries to sow the seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. Of course God didn't say that. But imagine if he had. Imagine if God had put Adam and Eve in that garden with all this beautiful fruit and said, you can't eat anything. You just have to sit there and look at it as if to taunt them. That's what the devil was suggesting to Eve. He's planting the seeds in Eve's mind that God's plan really isn't good. He says, did God really put you here and you couldn't even eat anything? And thankfully Eve managed to resist that temptation. She knew the truths that God had said, although she then fell in the next temptation. But it is one of Satan's worst and most evil devices is to convince you that God's plans aren't really that good. And he does it with lies. He does it by convincing you that something you thought, you knew God's plan was good. He'll say, is it really good? Does God really want you to abstain from that sin? Everyone else is doing it. It's just natural, isn't it? Like, everyone does that. How, God, surely God's got this one wrong. I mean, you can do that. It's fine. It's one of his most wicked and deadly temptations to convince you that God's plan is not good. Uh, other, other strategies the devil uses, he'll convince you that it's easy to repent afterwards. Go on, just do it. You know, God's rich in mercy. You can just repent afterwards. You can just repent, turn back, it'll be fine. But the truth is, you can't just repent afterwards. Because repentance is a gift that God gives by His Spirit. It's not something that we can naturally have the power to do ourselves. It's only something that God gives us by His grace, the ability to repent of sin. We can't, he'll convince you that it's in your power to repent, when for all you know, that sin might just harden you to go on and do more sin. It, you might not be able to repent afterwards. Repentance is a gracious gift that God has given to every one of us who is a Christian. But you can't be sure he'll always just give it to you when you want it. Because you might not even want it. The devil might say to you, oh, go on, you know, just repent afterwards. It's just like you always do, you know. God's merciful, full of grace, he'll forgive you. But the truth is, the devil may use it to harden your heart even more. And the next thing you know, you're convincing, you're, con you're convicting, doing, I don't know the word, an even bigger sin. And so, as soon as the devil begins this strategy, as soon as we enter into temptation, as soon as we enter into that time when the, the desires of the flesh and the desires of, sp of the spirit come to be at war with each other in that moment of temptation, uh, it's a battle, it's a struggle. And every one of us here who is a Christian, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. That battle, that struggle, sin is right there at the door. And you, you know what God says and you know it's wrong, but you just can't seem to get rid of it. It's just there, it just keeps coming back. The devil's lies just keep filtering into your mind and you just don't know what to do. You're wrestling, you're struggling. I've been through that situation countless times and I'm sure you have as well. Is the, the time of temptation, the hour of temptation, that moment when we enter into it. So, let me read quickly from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of, your, of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is what these things do. This is what these temptations do. They wage war against our souls. It's a life or death struggle, in one sense, every time we go into temptation. And so, 
in the Lord's Prayer, what is it that we pray? We pray, lead us not into temptation, and then, but deliver us from evil. I mean, it's not that we pray, lead us not into sin, although we ought to pray that for sure. It's lead us not into temptation. It's, it's what we ought to pray is that that time of temptation, that time of wrestling, that we would be delivered from that, that we don't even have to go through that time of wrestling against sin. Our prayer is that we are delivered from the hour of temptation, that the Lord would be gracious to us, that we don't fall into it. Uh, and what does Jesus say in his disciples, to his disciples in the passage we've been looking at? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. He doesn't say enter into sin, although we should watch and pray that we don't enter into sin. He says enter into temptation, that we should not even enter into temptation, that we should not even give the temptations a chance. And so we've looked at the nature of, of temptation and the danger, and point three, the remedy, which is to watch and pray. And I will speak later about the remedy when you have actually entered into temptation. But what I want to speak about first is the remedy so that you do not fall into temptation in the first place because Jesus has given us his own words, his commands, so that we do not fall into temptation. And what does he say? Watch and pray. So let me speak firstly about watching. Well, um, there are many things that we can do to, to watch so that we do not fall into sin. And a lot of them, again, come from things that Thomas Brooks has written because his, his words are, are very come from a man who suffered much temptation and who had much wisdom on how to avoid it. So I want to give you uh, some various things that he and others have said on how to watch so that we do not fall into temptation. First of all, we ought to keep a sufficient distance from any tempting object or anything that we know tempts us. All of us as human beings, with our sinful nature, we are we, as, as if it's predisposed to different temptations. There are some things especially that, caught, that tempt us and we know those things. We know that there are some things in our lives that even if they come near us, our sinful nature just latches onto it and wants it and grabs it. And once it grabs, it won't let go. That's the kind of thing we need to watch against. Those things especially that lead us into temptation. And we ought to steer clear of them. Even if they are things that are, are good otherwise. I mean, perhaps they are, it, if it is a necessity, then it is something that we must wrestle with. But if it's not a necessity for life, then we must be very careful. It could be a good thing. It could be a thing that, a thing that other Christians around you, brothers and sisters, have and enjoy, and they don't fall into sin from it. But if it's something that does cause you to fall into temptation, then be very careful. It may be a great cost to avoid it. It may be something that... If, seems to enrich your life greatly or enriches others' lives greatly, and you'd love it. You'd love to have it, but you know whenever you come near it, your sinful nature just latches. And all of a sudden, it's not just a good thing, it's something that's tempting you. It's something that your sinful desires want it. It's not a, a love for that thing, if I could say, but a lust for it. It's, it's changed. It's now it's something that your t- sinful nature wants. And so if you have things like that in your life, then I would warn you, to keep away from them. They may, give you, they may give some good to have them, but if it's endangering your soul to have those things, then you ought to be very careful. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 3 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. If you know something is dangerous to you, then see the danger coming and avoid it. Or Job, in Job chapter 31, verse 1, he says that he made a covenant with his eyes so he would not even look upon a virgin. He knew that was something he struggled with. He knew it was a temptation. And so he made a covenant with his eyes that he wouldn't even look. He wouldn't even look. There's nothing sinful about looking, looking at something, but he knew that if he did look, his sinful nature would latch on and it would become a temptation to him. And so he made a covenant with his eyes that he wouldn't even look. That's what it is. That's what it is to flee from things that cause us to fall into temptation. Of Psalm 119, verse 37, the psalmist prays to God. He says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. He says, Turn my eyes from those things. Give me life in your ways. Or one more example, uh, those under the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, you might know that they were, they were banned from drinking wine, they couldn't drink wine, but then God says something else. He says, and don't even eat grapes. 
Why would he say don't even eat grapes? It's clear that wine was the thing that they should avoid because of the danger that it posed, but don't even eat grapes. Well, God knew that to eat grapes would be something that causes you to, to think of wine, and to, if you ate it, you would think of the, the juiciness of the wine, and it would make you want it. And so God says, don't just avoid wine. Avoid even the thing that wine comes from. Go the next step to avoid the temptation. Don't even eat grapes. And so you ought to structure your life so that you can avoid those things that you know draw you into temptation. And even when we structure our lives, we must still always be watching other strategies we can use. Um, remember that God's eye is on you always. This is something we so often forget. And yet if you knew it, if you always had that in your mind, at the front of your mind, that God's eye is always upon you. He watches you. He knows you exactly what you're doing at every moment. Those things that we think we're doing in secret, those things that we feel like no one can see, no one notices, God does. His eye is on you always, so you must know it. If you remember that, it will, it will help you not to fall into sins, knowing the shame it will bring upon your father who is watching you at this very moment. We all know that when a parent is watching a child, the child will not fall into the temptations that they might have otherwise fallen into because they know that their parent is watching. And although it's, maybe it's not a, a good thing that they're just waiting till another time so they can do it, but with us and God, God is always watching us. He never stops. So remember that. Don't shame your father who is watching you at this very moment. Uh, others, uh, keep a tender conscience. And what I mean by that is make sure your conscience isn't seared by sin, but that even the slightest sin, even the smallest little inkling of sin, that your conscience is disgusted by it. Because the more we have sin around us, the more we are enveloped in it, it starts to desensitize us to it. It desensitizes our conscience. And so things that once maybe we thought were really bad, now we think, oh, you know, they're bad, but they're not that bad. And slowly over time, our conscience is seared and it becomes less receptive to sin. And it just happens by nature unless you're purposefully stopping your conscience and making sure that your conscience is alert to even the smallest sin. When someone... You're maybe you're in a conversation with people and maybe someone just says the slightest inkling of gossip or maybe um, someone takes the Lord's name in vain. Is your heart repulsed? Although maybe you don't naturally do it, but inside you just feel like that? Like it's just like, oh, oh I don't want even the slightest bit of that. Is that what your heart does? Because it ought to. You, you shouldn't be able to have sin so close to you, even if it's not you committing it, and just be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah that's, yeah, that's wrong, isn't it? God says that's wrong. No, it's like, oh, I don't want that. That kind of, that repulsion. Have a conscience that is constantly alert, a conscience that is not seared by sin so that it always responds to sin. Make sure your conscience is, is tender, like a, like a wound that even the slightest touch will provoke it. No, that's not a nice image, but it's kind of the sense of, like your conscience, even the tiniest bit of sin, it will, oh, it, it, it creates a terrible reaction. That's what your conscience ought to do to sin. And if it doesn't, train your conscience by reading the Word of God to know what is sinful and to and pray that God would cause you to be more and more repulsed by those sinful things. Other things we can do. Uh, when you fall into sin, when you do fall into some sin, think about what it was, that, what temptation it was that drew you into that sin. If you keep falling into the same sin over and over again and you just think, oh, well, you know, what, what can I do? I'm just keep falling into it. Like, think about, is there something that's been tempting you every single time that you're not even noticing? Remember, the temptation always leads to sin if it's not stopped. If sin is like a, a fruit or like a plant, then temptation like the root. Maybe not a fruit, maybe a plant, maybe a weed. Like, you, you cut it, it when you... When you have the sin and you get you get rid of it in your life it's like cutting off the the, the, the weed but if you leave the roots that are like the temptation it'll just keep coming back over and over and over again and you're just like what am i doing like i keep cutting this weed off and it just keeps coming back that the roots are still down there they're still in there and they're just going to keep swinging it up over and over again and so if you keep struggling with a sin but you don't know why look examine yourself examine your heart is there some temptation that's right next to me that i'm not noticing and so it keeps bringing me into sin and i just I'm just letting it happen because I haven't noticed what we ought to do. And before we go on, I want to speak about a few other things that are specific to our own personal time and our own culture that we live in. And first of all, I want to speak about something that 
is, is a temptation. It is also a sin. To do it is a sin. But it in and, itself, in and of itself is a temptation to so many other sins. And it is the sin of idleness. If you, you may have known that it was the sin of idleness that led to one of the most spectacular and awful temptations um, that fell into sin in the whole Bible, the tempta- David and Bathsheba. It was David's idleness that led him into that sin. It was the time when kings were supposed to be at war, yet he was just at home. He was lounging on his couch. It was the late afternoon. We all know what that feels like. It's the late afternoon. You're tired. You're just lounging, sitting there. That, those periods of idleness in your life, uh, the devil is so astute. He knows exactly how to use those times to draw you into sin. When you are in idleness, it is those times that make you fall into sin. Idleness is the breeding ground of temptation. Or you might know the old phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. It's true. When you are idle, when you are not doing something, something productive, something good with your time, if you are being idle, then the devil, the devil loves it. He rejoices. He, just, he can just do whatever he wants. Your mind is free. It's not thinking about anything. He just goes in and twists it and plays with it however he wants. And you don't even know because you're just being idle. You're just sitting there doing nothing. So I want to warn you about idleness. Those physical idleness, when you're literally just doing nothing or just doing something mindless, um, or spiritual idleness, when you're not keeping up in, with the Lord and your relationship with Him in His Word and in prayer. Both kinds of idleness are sinful, and both kinds of idleness lead to so many terrible temptations and sins. And it seems that this time, the 21st century, is the age of idleness. Uh, John Owen, in his, his book, he spoke about how back in his time he thought it was like the age of idleness. But it, imagine if he could see us today. He would be appalled. Our, our culture, it's just filled with it. The people who design social media sites like Facebook, they are incredible at their ability to make a tool for making people idle. They've mastered it. It's incredible how you t- go onto Facebook and you're like, you know, I'm just going onto it. And I'm sure a lot of you have Facebook. Like, I'm just going to do this. I just want to check this. Next moment, you spend an hour on it. Like, how did that? And you didn't even do the thing you went on it to do. And you're like, how did this happen? It's just so clever. Every part of it is designed perfectly to keep you on it and to make you just think about nothing. Just, it just, your mind just goes, just, your mind's just going. And it leads you into so many other sins. And if it's not social media, maybe it's video games or binge-watching television shows. I'm not saying these things are inherently sinful, but they are so, so good at making you idle. The devil, I am sure, he loves these things. He loves social media. He loves television shows and movies and video games. He loves them because he has led so many people into sin through them. He has used them to such terrible effect in so many people's lives. Again, I'm not saying these things are inherently sinful, but I might add they're pretty close in how good they are at drawing you into idleness, at drawing you into sin. They're just, they're things you must be very, very careful of. Now, amidst our, our lives as slaves of Christ, we ought to be giving up each day, taking up our cross daily and following him. And certainly there are times he gives us for rest and for relaxation, it is true. But so many Christians, especially young people, seem to have absolutely no self-control in the sense that as soon as they hear that they have some license to do these things or to watch these things or to play these things or to go on these websites, the next moment they've wasted a whole precious day that God has given them to take up their cross and follow him binge-watching a television show, a, a precious day that the Lord gave them to serve him, and they spent the whole day in idleness. And I, I don't want to condemn you if that's something that you do. I just want to say, be very careful. This, this idleness, it leads to so many other sins. It leads to you not spending time with the Lord. It leads to your mind wandering into wicked and unhelpful places. So be very careful. And all of you here are Christians and a lot of you are young and I want to say please don't waste these precious years of youth that the Lord has given you in idleness. These years are the the peak of your physical and intellectual strength and that the Lord has blessed you with and yet there are so many people 
They, they go through their 20s and even their 30s. And if you look at their life and what they do, their, their life is just defined by playing video games, watching television, going to parties, and maybe begrudgingly studying at uni and doing some kind of full-time work or something afterwards. But you look at their life and they, God gave them these precious years of peak of their strength, peak of their mind. And what did they do? It was just wasted. They wasted in idleness, doing nothing. Because these things are so good at trapping you. And that's what, if you do things like that, I want to say, I don't want to condemn you. I just want to say, please, listen and don't fall into the trap. And so it is okay to do these things like watching movies and watching television shows, although you have to be very careful about what they have in them. But it is okay to do those things and to relax. But be very careful because they are so good at trapping you. The, the people, those sites and those video games, they have psychologists who help them to design the game and the psychologists who know how human minds work, they design it so that you will spend as much time on it as possible. Facebook has psychologists behind it who understand how the mind works and they have designed it exactly so it will keep you on it. So you stay on it, so you spend more money on the things on it, so you get more traction to their website. It's designed exactly to do what it does to so many people. So I want to say, be careful. Because the devil loves to use it to lead people into sin. The devil loves it. If you're being idle, there are so many temptations that are right there. They're right at the door. They're so easy to fall into. Don't waste your time, these precious years the Lord has given you, these precious days in idleness. I don't, I don't say this to condemn you. I say this because I don't want to see another Christian who I have seen so many times, young Christians who go through their 20s and they've just wasted the whole time. They just go home and play video games every day and they do nothing with the precious time God's given them. Please don't be like that. Please use the time he's given you to serve him. And there's one other specific temptation I want to speak about quickly before we move on. Um, it's one of the most deadly and abhorrent of all temptations and yet it seems to be becoming more and more acceptable even among Christians and it's the temptation to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is something we must flee from at all costs. It is an utterly deadly temptation and it has caused the ruin of so many people, even the Lord's people, who have been ruined by it. And there is forgiveness even from sins like that as we know but it causes such ruin in your lives. It is so bad. Sexual immorality was a, a sin that, if you remember Joseph with, with Potiphar's wife, what did he do? He, he tried everything to get away from Potiphar's wife and in that peak time when he was with her alone in the house, he just ran for it. He was a slave. He wasn't allowed to leave. He had work to do. But he knew that this, he was going to fall into sin if he stayed. He was being tempted. He got to the point where he said, no, nope, I'm getting out of here. I cannot stand this. He had to flee. And so I want to say to you all, flee from sexual immorality at any cost. Watch out for it because it's all around us and it's deadly. I want to say especially when it comes to the, the things that we watch, like television shows and movies. How many of you watch movies or television shows which portray and glorify sexual immorality whether it's people casually having sex with other people or whether it's adultery or all other kinds of things i mean it seems to be in everything whether it's the latest marvel movie or it's the latest chick flick or television shows that people watch they all glorify sexual immorality and yet we as christians seem to just watch them and lap it in and just say oh yeah you know no it's okay that's not okay but i'll just watch it because i enjoy it you have no idea how deadly that is to your soul when you watch and it shows that glorify sexual immorality. When you watch it, I want to use an, an illustration that's, that's crude, and I'm, I'm sorry if it's crude for you, but it gets the point across. Imagine that you are married. Some of us, it's not that hard to imagine. Um, but for those of you who are not, imagine that you're married and imagine you, you live in a house on the street and um, you... You, know, you love your wife and you want to be faithful to her or your husband or whoever it is, but you, really, you struggle with sexual immorality. You, know, you struggle with, with the desires and the lusts and, and you want to put it to death and you want to be faithful to your wife always. And then one day your neighbor, he comes up to you and he says, oh, you know, by the way, I've been, I've been sleeping with this woman who isn't my wife. And you know, she's, coming, she's coming over again tonight and I'm going to do it again. 
And, and so you, as someone who struggles with sexual temptation, as many of us do, and, and so what, what does the person do? Well, that night, this person, they go into the, the house of the person who's committing the sexual immorality. When the woman is there, goes up into the bedroom and watches the event unfold. You might think that's disgusting, that's perverse. What, what would even make you think of that? Well, I want to say that when you watch those television shows and you see it happening, it is exactly the same thing. It is exactly what you are putting into your mind when you watch it happening. You watch images of sexual immorality. I know maybe there's some of you who have never done that. Maybe there's some of you who don't watch these things. But for so many of us, we do. We watch television shows where this happens and we just let it go into our mind. And I want to warn you, you have no idea what it's doing to your mind, the way it leads you into temptation. Don't fall into it. Because we, we just can't, you can't imagine what it is doing to you and the, the temptation it leads you into. Imagine if, if you were speaking to a, a Christian from 100 years ago and you were trying to describe what it is that Christians watch today or so many Christians watch and you were describing, you say, yeah, you know, people, there's these televisions that just portray people committing adultery and we just sit there and just watch it and we see it happening. That they would be abhorred. Imagine if you talked to a Christian back then and was like, well, have you ever seen someone commit adultery? And you would say, what? That's disgusting. I can't even imagine that. Every Christian would have said that a hundred years ago. But for us Christians today, who hasn't? Who hasn't seen it happen on television or in a movie? Who hasn't? And so I want to warn you, please, don't fall into that temptation. Don't watch those things that portray it. You may be like, oh, it's just one scene. It's just nothing. I mean, I really enjoy the plot and it's a great film but it's so dangerous it's going to lead you into so many temptations and again i'm not saying because i want to condemn you and make you feel like you're the worst sinner ever i just want to say that please know how dangerous it is please know how dangerous it is and know what you are falling into because you just think about it and how awful it is when you just think about what's really happening when you're doing that don't don't do it don't watch it and maybe you could say, oh, you know, I just fast forward through those times. And maybe, maybe you can do that. I don't know. But just know how dangerous it is. Know how dangerous the temptation is. Please don't feel like I'm just slamming you because I want you to feel bad. But I want you to know how dangerous it is and not to fall into it. Because it is deadly. The devil loves to use these things to draw us away from following God. So if it has, it is, that is something you do. And I confess, I in my years, even as being a Christian, have countless times watched movies and television shows which portray that. And I myself am now disgusted by it, that I watched that, that I have seen that, that it's gone into my mind. And I repent over it and I pray that you would do the same if you watch those things. And you wouldn't, if it means you, you miss the latest movie that you love or something, it's not worth it for the terrible danger that it possesses to your soul. It's not worth it. Alright, so that was to watch. The second thing we ought to do, as Christ has said, we ought to pray. We cannot flee from temptation without the gracious help of God. We cannot. All these strategies that I just gave you are good, and you must do them. But without God's help, you will not succeed against temptation. You will not. The prayer is what we must use. Remember in the the weapons of the Spirit in uh, Ephesians 6, what is it ought to gird all of them together? It's this prayer. They ought all to have prayer. All prayer, as um, the Pilgrim's Progress describes it. Um, Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, he tries, he's, he's battling with a demon. It's a great book, you should read it. Anyway, he's battling with a demon and um, he, he tries all the weapons of the, the weapons of the spirit that God's given him, the sword of the spirit and everything, and none of them work against the devil or against this demon. And so he turns to his final weapon he has, which is all prayer, praying at all times. And he succeeds because God helps him defeat the, this demon. And that is it. It is prayer. It is prayer that must surround everything we do. When we fall into temptation, we must pray. The devil utterly hates prayer. He abhors it. The devil loves temptations. He loves the things that draw you into temptation, but he hates prayer. And he will do anything, anything he can to stop you from praying because he knows prayer is where the power is because prayer is when you go to your father and talk to him. 
If you think again, like a great in a battle, in a war, one of the most effective strategies you can ever use in a war is to cut off your enemy's supply line. Because it doesn't matter how strong they are, they will fail. They will lose if they have no supplies to come from behind them. And the devil wants to do that. He wants to cut off your supply line. And your supply line is prayer, is God. He is the one who gives you strength. That is his first point of attack. Cut off the supply. Cut off prayer. Stop you from praying. Make you doubt God's goodness. Make you doubt that God loves you and that he provides for you. That is what you must do. You must realize he does not want you to pray. Remember that the prayer of a righteous man is power, a righteous woman is powerful and effective. Prayer is the means by which we ought to fight temptation. And I say this knowing we, of course, ought to do all these studies. We cannot simply pray and then just sit there and think that God will keep us safe. We, there are things that we must do. As Christ said, we must not only pray, but we must watch. But we must pray. In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, during Christ's hour of temptation, what is he doing? What do we find him doing? He is praying. He prays to his Father. He pleads with his Father. And he gets strength from his Father. And he is sustained during his time of temptation. And he overcomes through the prayer. Remember, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. We praise the Lord that he would deliver us from temptation, that he would lead us away from it, because he does to those who trust in him. He does to those who rely on him. So pray. Pray always. Pray without ceasing. John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he says, Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. And it's true. If you pray, that is your greatest weapon against temptation. It is God and his strength. He will keep you safe. And so what about in those times when you have fallen into temptation, when you're wrestling, when you're struggling, you're in the battle? Well, I want you to remember, first of all, being tempted, even when you're in that hour of temptation, being tempted itself is not a sin. When you are in that hour of temptation and fighting, you haven't sinned. That the one who's committed a sin at that stage is the tempter and not the tempted. It is Satan who is sinning at that point by tempting you, but it's not you sinning. You are not sinning yet. Remember that and take comfort in the fact that in the wrestle you haven't sinned yet, but be sure that the devil is tempting you to. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and that whole section in 1 Corinthians 10 from around verse 13 is one of the most comforting words to those who are struggling with temptation where uh, Paul says, Do not despair, for no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. And what he's saying is, remember that many others have gone through the exact temptations that you have before and succeeded, have overcome by the help of God. Remember Job. Think of how greatly and how terribly he was tempted. Maybe worse and greater than any of us have ever been tempted in our lives. And yet he persevered by God's grace. He persevered through the temptation. He didn't give in. Sometimes during temptation, another one of the devil's strategies is to make us feel isolated. To make us feel like there's no one who understands. No one's ever experienced this before. No one could know what I'm going through. And it's terrible when you feel like no one's ever been through the same thing as you. When you feel like you're on this alone and you have no one with you, it feels terrible. And it's one of the devil's strategies. But remember, you have a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before you, who have gone through the same temptations and prevailed by God's grace. And be sure of this, that at this very moment, whatever temptation you may be struggling with or will struggle with, there are many brothers and sisters around the world right now at this moment who are struggling with the same thing. We are in this together. We all struggle together. You are not isolated. It's not you on your own, but together we as the body of Christ fight against the devil and succeed. We, I'm sure you all know how great comfort there is if you are going through some terrible trial in your life, something awful but there is someone else with you going through the same thing. It is one of the greatest comforts to know that you're not alone, that someone knows what you're going through. They're going through the same thing. It is so comforting and it will sustain you. In the, the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, always had someone with him who was going through the same things as him and it was such a comfort to him to know that there was another, another believer who was going through the same trials. And it's the same for us. When we know that there are others who are going through the same trials and there are others who have succeeded, it is such a comfort your soul to know that other things to remember 
we ought to remember that God will not tempt us more than we can bear. Again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Remember Job. Remember what God said to the devil when he was tempting Job? God measured out exactly to the portion how much the devil was allowed to tempt Job. He told the devil exactly what he was allowed to do. And why? Well, quite possibly it was because God knew that was exactly how much Job could bear. He knew that Job had strength. He knew that Job would overcome that. He knew, and so that's exactly how much he got, he gave Job. Remember God is sovereign over your temptations. Remember God knows exactly what you're going through. He will not tempt us more than we can bear. But as the rest of the first and as the rest of the verse says, he will provide the way of escape. There's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He knows. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows how to help you and to turn to him and trust in him. Because it doesn't matter how big the temptation seems, he will rescue you from it if you turn to him and you trust in him. Do not turn to the sin. Do not listen to the devil's lies. But turn to him and trust in him. And for, for more comfort, there is so much comfort the Lord gives us. Even more, remember that Christ has suffered through the same temptations as we have. And that just because he was, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to 18. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, Hebrews 4. And so he knows exactly what we are going through. He, enough, it may, might not even be enough to think that all the brothers and sisters around the world who know what you're going through, but Jesus knows what you're going through. He, your Lord, has gone before you. He, your, your master, your captain, he has gone before you on the road that you walk. He has walked it and succeeded. He knows the way. He knows the path. Even if it may feel like a maze, he knows exactly how to get out. And he will lead you because he's gone there before. If you trust him, if you pray to him, and if you rely on him. So we ought to know when the, when the, sorry, when the sin comes. One other thing I might say, Josh said it before. When we fall into that hour of temptation... One of the, the best strategies we can use, which I haven't mentioned yet, is to kill sin at the first instant. It's like a disease. A disease is much easier to kill with medication when it's just starting to get into your body than when it's gone all through and infected you. It is much easier when there's just a few of the bacteria or viruses, whatever, it, whatever is in you. If you treat it then, the medication almost always works. But if you wait till it infects the whole body, it is far harder to remove. And so when you feel that you are entering into that hour of temptation, pray to the Lord for strength to kill it at once. Don't give in. Don't, let, don't wrestle for a second longer without relying on God, without praying to him, without asking him to help you. I think one of the most fitting images that often the Puritans used to describe the Christian life was like the burning bush in Moses' time. They said it, a Christian always burns but is never consumed. And that's what they meant in terms of temptation. It's as if we're always burning, we're always struggling, but never consumed because the Lord sustains us. So remember that image when, you are, when you're struggling through temptation, always burning, but never consumed because the Lord helps you, he sustains you. And finally, uh, I want to finish by saying, when you are tempted, when you go into that time of temptation and you do fall into sin, you do fall into the sin that you were tempted to fall into. Well, remember the precious truth that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We ought not to despair and feel hopeless when we have fallen into sin. Remember your advocate, remember Christ. And what you ought to do is, as soon as you are brought under conviction of that sin, pray to God and repent. Confess your sins to him and turn back to him. Watch out when you do fall into sin. Because one thing, one of the devil's worst strategies is when you do fall into sin, he uses it to harden you. He uses it to harden your heart. He hardens you with the deceitfulness of sin. And so slowly but surely, he hardens your heart to one sin and then makes you move on to a greater sin. So even if you have fallen into a small sin, repent. Do not wait. There are so many stories that you can read of, of people, maybe not, not Christians, but people who have done awful and terrible things in this world. And you hear what they say about it, and they say it all started with one small thing, just one little thing that I did. And over time it grew, and it grew, and it got worse and worse. 
And that's what the devil does. He hardens. He hardens you to one thing and then he puts on the next. And he hardens you to that so it doesn't affect you anymore, like your heart's cold to it, and he makes you do something else. And so watch out. Be on your guard. Praise the Lord that your heart would not be hardened, but that your conscience would be, would be um, not hardened. I've forgotten what the word is. But pray to the Lord that your conscience would be soft. That's the word. Um, repent. Turn back to the Lord. Before I finish, I want to give you some final exhortations. First of all, remember how prone you are to sin and to temptation. Remember, I think often we forget, but one of the, an apt metaphor to describe your life as you walk through this sinful world with a sinful nature within you is like walking through a field of landmines. Only it would be safer to walk through a field of landmines because it's so deadly. Landmines can just affect you physically, but sin, temptation spiritually, which is far, far worse. And so be on your guard always. Be like a watchman in a city who's always watching because that moment when you turn away is the moment when the foreign army could strike and you weren't watching and you didn't get the city ready and then you are defeated. And I tell you, watch always. Remember, 1 Corinthians 10, that same passage we've kept coming back to, there are those, those words that are so apt. If anyone thinks that he stands, he must be careful lest he fall. If you, if you feel self-confident, if you feel like you can do it, if you feel like you don't need to watch, you feel like, you know, I've got this under control, be careful that you don't fall because that is the time when Satan can get at you because your defences are down. And so it might seem hard that you have to be watchful always every moment of your life, and it is, but pray to the Lord for help. Pray that he would sustain you. Every morning when you wake up, pray. Ask him that he would keep you safe from temptation. Of course, it's so apt in the Lord's Prayer. What do we pray every day? Pray the Lord's Prayer each day. Lead us not into temptation. It ought to be our prayer every day or even every hour of the day. Lead us not into temptation. Keep us safe because it's so deadly. And I want to finish finally with some um, verses from Psalm 119. Um, um, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? by guarding it according to your word. Guard your life according to God's word. Remember the truth of his word. Read it because he tells you what is sinful so you know what sin is and he tells you how to rely on him. Read his word. Know his word. Know his word back to front so that like Christ when he was tempted by the devil in, in Matthew 4, what did he do? He, he knew the scriptures and so he brought scripture to mind. He knew the temptations were evil because he took the scriptures and he said, I know this and this. This is why it's wrong. Have you not read what the Lord has said? If you are someone who reads the Scriptures, who knows the Scriptures, then when the temptation comes, what will you do? Call to the Scripture that you need to your mind. Call it to your mind. And you say, No, Satan, for the Lord has said, Thou shalt not, whatever it is. Say, No, Satan, the Lord says, I shall not do this. Respond to him. Say, No, I will not fall into it, for my Father has forbidden it. How could I do this? this great and terrible wickedness that my Father has forbidden. Turn uh, your eyes to the Lord's word. And finally, I want to end with Psalm 119, verse 176. Uh, that, that last word of Psalm 119. Uh, it's a prayer that we ought to pray always for the, when we are lost, when we fall into to sin, which we so often do. Psalm 119, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us. We are so weak. Without you, we can do nothing. Without you, O oh Lord, we should so easily fall at the first temptation. For indeed, the, the devil, he is much stronger than we are in our weakness. And yet you, O oh Lord, you you have him as if by a chain. He goes only as far as you should let him and not an inch further. And thank you, O Lord, that you are sovereign over all. Even through our times of great temptation and great trial, you are sovereign over it all. And you care for us. You know how to rescue us out of temptation. Lord, I pray that we would be wise, that we would not be ignorant of the devil's devices, but we would be wise, O Lord. We would know his schemes 
and you would, you would give us wisdom that we should watch and pray so that we do not fall into them, O oh Lord. I pray that we would guard our lives with the, the armour, the full armour that you give us, O oh Lord. But above all, I ask that you would gird us with all prayer, that we would be praying at all times with all kinds of prayer and petitions, O oh Lord. We know that the devil, he hates prayer, and yet it is our greatest weapon because it is calling you to come and stand beside us, O oh Lord, and, and intercede for us in this time. And if you are standing there, the devil will cower in fear, for he cannot... He cannot do anything if you are, are with us and sustaining us. So I pray that you would call, we would call you to ourselves in times of temptation. We would not seek to rely on our own strength as we so often do. And Lord, we know that when we do, we fail and we fall into sin. I pray that we would rely on you, that we would be wise, that we would trust you, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.